Soccer Show and our latest batch of delicious listener questions, fresh from the oven of our inbox. Today, we're tackling the tough topic of turf. We'll look at why Man City can't quite go the distance in the Champions League, and we'll hop in our DeLoreans, gun it to 88, and discuss the one historical goal we would stop from going in. Mm. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who doesn't rock badly, he doesn't rock adequately. He rocks well. Taylor Rockwell, hello. <laughs> I do. I try to rock at least above average, uh, generally speaking, and then I try to rock well when I have the energy. So generally, you do rock well, just to confirm. I mean, for as much as a person who has trouble keeping beat and rhythm uh, can rock, yes, I rock well. Oh, gosh. Not much determinism has let me down there. They'll let you down, rather, I should say. <laughs> Man, I just say, just don't let me play like uh, drums on Guitar Hero or Rock Band or whatever it is, and I think we'll be fine. Suggestion noted. Also joining us, Taylor, is a man whose prose isn't flowery, he doesn't live in the Bowery, and whose marriage, his future marriage, won't involve a dowry. Hello, Joe Lowry. <laughs> Ryan, these these name-based intros are great. I'm really happy with that. I think they should come back, although I'm not sure you can do anything else with Taylor's last name. Maybe his first name. Now I'm just stuck, though, going back to, uh, Taylor, you talking about Rock Band or, or Guitar Hero. If if the four of us, Graham's not here today, but Ryan, if, if you, me, Taylor, and Graham were to sit down and play Guitar Hero or, or, or Rock Band, what would our various instruments be? Because there's there's guitar, there's drums, there's there's vocals too, right? We could have a couple guitarists. I think we could actually make a full band here. Let's do I, it. I, f- I feel like I can answer this one pretty pretty directly. Brilliant. Ryan is vocals, Graham is drums, I'll take bass, sigh, and Joe is guitar. Okay. Deal. I do play a little guitar, not super well, but like enough to be competent in real life, and I think more than enough to be competent in Guitar Hero. So I, I accept my position, Taylor. Excellent. Uh, I, I'm glad you accepted. And then Ryan, the the rule for you would be that you have to accept that you have to wear the the outfit that Dennis wears in Always Sunny when he becomes <laughs> the band's frontman. So it's like a silver sequiny. Uh, like romper jumper sort of thing yeah. with a flared collar. I think you'd look good in that. I think I'm picturing yeah, so some eighties, maybe some journey vibes going on. I like it. <laughs> Very good. Let's get that arranged. Um, and by the way, Joe, I, I thank you for com- uh, praising my rhyming um, intros. I'm glad Graham Rutherford isn't here because nothing rhymes with Rutherford. Um, <laughs> Graham is not with us. He's he's actually on his way to the United States uh, as we record. I imagine he's watching six screens at once, like he's got all of um, the the row in, in his in his uh, on the airplane tuned into different games. In fact, if he can't watch games for like seven hours, what happens to Graham? Does he like oh. wilt? I don't know. I think he starts to melt back into the seat, unless he can get everyone in his row to agree to put on different games at the same time. Hey, sorry, could you could you put on Syria over there? No, no, sorry. Yeah, yeah Channel Four. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I think of like the Arrested Development episode where Michael goes to the beach and instead of relaxing and having fun, he gets the group of kids to build his housing development so he can see what it will look like. I, I picture Graham just having everybody on the plane setting up like little soccer fields on their tray tables when they're down, provided they're allowed to be down, uh, so that he's got multiple games to follow at once. He's live blogging the stewardesses serving the, the meals and such, <laughs> I imagine, at this point. Uh, but Florida, beware, because the illest man in the world is about to land in your fair state, So, um, or he may have done already by the time you listen to this. But uh, Graham, um, we, we look forward to your return, and we hope you have a lovely vacay. 
Gents, should we get into some listener cues? Why don't we? Let's start off with one with some from, excuse me, from Cigar Sierra Majiri, who says, if you could spend one day with any coach of any team, who would you pick? You can assume you would get their undivided attention. They will train you just like any other pro in their team, or you can just choose to hang out with them and pick their brains. Who would you choose and how would you spend your day? Joe, I'll come to you first. Uh, my brain immediately went to Jurgen Klopp, but I've made some more interesting choices. Did you go to Jurgen Klopp also? I did. He was the, the third member of my list, so I have three. Jurgen Klopp is absolutely one of them. I will not be training or practicing under any of these managers. That is not, not how I'm <laughs> going to choose to spend my time. If I was a little more competent and confident in my own abilities, we might have a different discussion, but I, I know myself and I know my strengths. So we're just going to chat for a while. Maybe we'll watch some film. We'll get to, to look at the tactics board a little bit. I'll get a tour of kind of their workflow and how they work and what the facilities are like and all that good stuff. But no, there will be no actual soccering happening with any of these managers. <laughs> Jurgen Klopp, I think, would be interesting because uh, I, I think he has so many really strange but also motivational qualities to him. He seems like a very weird guy in a lot of ways, but also a really bubbly and energetic and motivational kind of person. So I'm curious to learn more from him about how he works with people, both his players and other people inside the Liverpool front office. Because I think Liverpool are a, a model club in so many different ways. Not all of them, but, but a lot of different ways, and especially with data and player recruitment. You think about the players they brought in over the last few seasons. Maybe maybe we'll expend, extend it a little beyond a few. Mo Salah and Sadio Mane, picking up those two players was brilliant. Obviously, Firmino from Germany bringing in Luis Diaz this season and Thiago before him, the way they've been able to build this squad, Virgil van Dijk, so systematically and cleverly, I think is brilliant. And I, I want to understand how Klopp works with the other folks in Liverpool's front office to try to integrate data because it's ha that has to be happening. It's, it's one of the only explanations given how much Liverpool have spent on that, how he's integrating those things and working with those people on an everyday basis. I think that would be interesting. The other two quickly, I'll go, I'll go through a little more quickly here. Julian Nagelsmann, another German. I just want uh, a full day of longboarding 101 from Julian Nagelsmann. That's it. <laughs> What's the form? What's the technique like? Can you possibly get any bigger wheels for that thing? I don't think so, but I'd like to ask. Honestly, though, I think he would be interesting as well. Nagelsmann's clearly a very tactical, tactically inclined fellow. But he also talks a lot about how without being able to manage and work with people, none of the tactic stuff matters because you're not going to be able to get through to them. And I think figuring out how he goes about finding that balance would be fascinating as well, similar to Klopp in, in some respects there. And my last one, and I want to hear what you guys have to say after this, is Jesse Marsh. It's kind of the obvious one for me. He seems like a really engaging guy, uh, and I really enjoy American soccer and watching it grow. So getting to learn from Jesse Marsh about his experiences and how Europe and his time there has shaped him and given him perspective on certain things in the U.S., I think would be really, really interesting, and that would be an enjoyable day as well. Joe, I feel like uh, th those are all wonderful choices. Uh, I'm not sure how much undivided time you get with Klopp because he'd make you be speaking to neuroscientists and whatnot <laughs> throughout the day as well. But they all seem quite intense. It seems like you're going to be like really go. prodded and motivated very hard all day. Yeah, I, that was sort of an unintentional side effect of picking people that I think are, one, interesting managers in their personality, and two, are more tactically inclined. I mentioned that specifically with Nagelsmann, but I think all of these three managers have very specific tactical approaches. And, and maybe, Taylor, part of me thinks you have Carlo Ancelotti on your list. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. And that, that would be a fun day. 
I just don't think I have anything in common with Carlo Ancelotti. I don't think we could talk about anything. I could listen, I guess, but I, I don't think we could relate on many levels. And I'm not saying I'm like going to be best buds with Marsh, Nagelsmann, or Klopp, but I think I would have more intelligent questions to ask to prod conversation with those fellows, even though they're more intense, which is maybe not my own personality, than, than with someone like Ancelotti. So, first of all, I feel like Joe has already taken shots at my nominee, <laughs> uh, because he is absolutely correct. Carlo Ancelotti is my answer. And I thought about the obvious ones. I thought about Klepp, uh, Klepp. I thought about Klopp and Pep uh, together, apparently, as one person. But uh, we've been in a pandemic. Uh, I think my ability to socialize is still sort of recovering. I find that if I go out to social events, after about an hour, I'm like, whew, I am gassed. All right. Uh, and maybe that's also just like... Uh, getting older and babies and whatnot. But I don't know if I could handle the full attention of Klopp and Pep. I feel like I would be sort of like, oh, man, this is a lot. Like, I'd be tired really quickly. Like, we're going to do another training session. We're doing another video session. You don't want to just, like, hang out and watch some TV for a little bit. So I I think maybe I could roll with that. Uh, But Carlo Ancelotti would be really fun because he has the history and has had game-changing tactics at times, but then also has that sort of if not jovial, then just like relaxed, calm disposition. Uh, I could pretend to enjoy smoking a cigar with him while we talked about the history of the game, but observing a tactic session, a training session, and seeing how he sort of goes about motivating players uh, in a way that I, I don't think is is so sort of in their face and direct coaching. I think it's more uh, calm instruction is my guess, and I feel like that would be interesting to see because I come from a background in soccer of if you want to get your message across, you yell it as loud as you can. That was how I was coached. That was how I coached for a little while until somebody pointed out, you don't always have to yell at everybody. So I think learning some new approaches to coaching in a different kind of philosophy would be really interesting. That said, my other nominee goes very much against all of this, and it's Diego Simeone, because I want to know how quickly I would get indoctrinated into his like cult of personality. And I can envision myself going in in the beginning of the day thinking, like, this is going to be a little intense. I'm not sure how I feel about this, but I kind of want to learn some things. And coming out, like, we must defend this house. Everyone is against us. <laughs> like, I can see myself fully buying in to Simeone's line of reasoning. And then I would be able to understand how he gets his players to play 110% intensity defense for 120 minutes of a game. Serious question, sincere question, Taylor. Do you think mm. Simeone would be a jerk when you hang out with him? Though? Would, you, would you be able to get along with him? Or do you think that's just his coaching persona? I don't think he would like me very much, <laughs> is my honest answer. I don't think he's a jerk. I think he's probably, like I thought of uh, Jose Mourinho in, in this, for this question as well. A person who is obviously very prickly on the outside, is prone to kind of uh, outbursts and frustrations. But everything I have ever heard from him, from people who have a- interacted with him one-on-one, or he's attended a training session or popped by or whatever it could be, he's a very nice guy. But I think... That might be the case for Simeone, but I think I'm very confident that he is not a as much of an like an emotional questioning sort of guy. And I feel like would be annoyed by how many times I say things like I feel when I start my questions. I don't know if that would go over so well with him. So I could see me asking him long winded questions about emotional motivation. And he would be like, I, I don't know what that means. I yell at them. Let's get this over with. Like, I could see me annoying him by the end of the day. Uh, and maybe that's how that would end up playing out. Taylor, unless Taylor, unless you're feeling your enemy's blood, like soaking out of their body, I don't think Diego <laughs> yeah, exactly. wants to hear it. Or <laughs> exactly. feeling your own groin as you grab it in celebration. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That was way better. That was way better than mine. <laughs> I, I guess you're not spending your day in therapy with him, I suppose, is oh. what you're getting at. Uh, <laughs> that's, 
Uh, I smell a sitcom right there. There you go. Oh. There you go. I've gone. Speaking of sitcom, I've gone for some a couple uh, slightly out there choices. My choice first would my choice the first would be Sean Dyche. Um, I, there is another podcast out there. Believe uh, I, I, I was really shocked to discover there's more than one podcast out there uh, besides <laughs> this one. Uh, it's called the High Performance Podcast, which has high performing people in their respective fields being interviewed by a British journalist called Jake Humphrey. Um, and there's an episode with Sean Dutch called Allowing Individual Brilliance in a Team Environment. And I have to say, it completely changed my opinions of Sean Dutch, who I've sort of tarred with the brush of, you know, gruff northern, like 442, let's eat some worms. And it, um, he's got quite a few more layers than that. He came across really, really well. He's obviously a great man manager and someone who is very insightful. Someone who has obviously done a really, who did do a really good job with Burnley's kept a bang average team in the Premier League for as long as he did. Uh, I think he'd be fascinating. And to spend my day with him, I'm going to go fishing. We're going to be on a boat, just the two of us. And I just think he'd be, maybe we wouldn't use worms as bait. I was going to say, that's a risky move, Ryan. (laughs) You're going to run out of bait. The fish might go hungry. But um, I I, I think just a day on on the lake with him, we could could be a, a sitcom of sorts, perhaps. I don't know how it would pan out, but I think he'd be a fascinating person to spend some time with just because I, for many years, thought he was much more brash than he actually is. Those looks behind the scenes at people in all sorts of different fields, but if we if we focus on soccer in particular, are always fascinating to me because, Ryan, there is almost always, and I'll, I'll focus on almost, more to it than we think there is, right? I mean, if you think about managers in particular and you look at someone like Sean Dyche or, or even someone else that's kept a team in the Premier League while playing a really basic and seemingly old-fashioned tactical style, and it sort of makes you think between that and just their their maybe their even their nationality. I'm not saying this is this is right necessarily, but between a number of different factors, you might make an assumption about someone. But then you hear them speak, and you realize it takes a lot more than what we see to have success. And, and success for them might be staying in the Premier League, but to have success over a sustained period of time. There is almost always a lot more depth to those individuals, and I think getting a look at some of that stuff is really interesting. So I hope you guys have fun while you fish. Where, where are you going? What body of water? Um, I don't, I've never been fishing before. I don't know. I don't know anything about fishing. Maybe he'd teach me. I bet he'd be Ooh. a good fishing guy. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Make it Lake Como if you're going with a lake, and then you can have fancy with Sean Dyche. I feel like Sean Dyche in Italy is what we all need to see. Oh, Ryan, yeah. I really like the idea of of doing a task while spending the day with a person because I, you know, like you know that moment where I feel like I'm just like relaying all of my social awkwardness when you're talking to a person one on one and it's gone on for a while and you reach that point of like, should I keep making eye contact with them? Do I look away? Okay, <laughs> now I got to look back. Oh, now they've looked away. Like I think having a thing to do removes some of that awkwardness, and it also gives you a way to get into the conversation more easily. So I like the idea of watching a game or fishing or I, like gardening in the backyard with somebody. Whoever gets placed on gardening leave most recently, we can actually do some gardening with them and find out what it's like to be sacked, but not officially sacked. I think anything that gives you a task uh, that distracts from some of that intensity is maybe the way to go. So I'm now amending my answer to, I want to do gardening with Diego Simeone. There we go. Wow. I feel sorry for those beds, those flower beds. That's all <laughs> I can say. He's just, my mom always told me that like you're supposed to sing to plants when you transfer them. Uh, to like, I guess like they, they respond to it theoretically, but mm. I like the idea, the idea of Diego Simeone just berating his plants into growing faster, and then they actually would. <laughs> yeah, Prince Charles famously sung to his plants. Yeah, very good. That's uh, not good company. That's not good company for me. <laughs> One other choice I have I'm going to lay on you. I've 
very slight tangent because Sagar in his question says you could spend the day with any coach of any team. I've gone non-soccer. Um, there is a gentleman in Formula One called Toto Wolf. I don't know if either of you are familiar with Toto Wolf, but he is the team principal, the coach at Mercedes. Uh, and if you've watched Drive to Survive, you'll have seen a lot of him. Um, and he too was on this high performance podcast. This is why I got thinking about Toto Wolf because um, Formula One is a sport where you presume it's all about engineering. A lot of people think majority of it is about engineering. You need the right car, and then you just put a guy in it who can guide it around the track. And Toto Wolf completely dispelled this in this in this podcast. He said for him, his team is 90 or 95% about people and like 5 to 10% about engineering. People are the most important thing of any organization he's been in. He's a guy who's been really successful in business prior to getting into F1. And I just thought with his principles and the way he treats people and the way he... Uh, sort of motivates people. I really felt that he could be a world-class soccer manager. He could like m- transfer all of his skills there. And there's this moment in Drive to Survive where they interview his wife, who was also a-, a racing driver back in the day. And she says, watch Toto when the pressure's on, when there's a real pressure point in a race or something, he gets bigger. And she meant it, I suppose, like, you know, metaphorically, but also physically, you watch him and his shoulders rise. He like rises to the challenge and he gets bigger. And I'm just, he is one of the most fascinating people in the world to me. So I just merely wanting to spend some time with him. Um, and also I just feel like he's the kind of guy who could apply his management skills and his people skills to any field he chose. So Toto Wolf is my random choice. Joe, have you heard of Toto Wolf? I haven't, but Ryan, you I appreciated the rest of that explanation. You had me at Toto Wolf. That was as far as <laughs> I feel like you needed to go. Never heard of him, but now we'd like to become his best friend. I'll be crashing your uh, your day date. He is a, he's a large Austrian man who looks very sort of intimidating. Excellent. And on Drive to Survive, they keep um, he does these really specific breakfast orders. He's like, I'll have one egg turned over once. The toast will be between this color brown and this color brown. It will be in the toaster <laughs> for 30 seconds. Like, it was <laughs> incredibly specific. He's a man who knows what he wants. Classic That's Toto. what you want Classic to spend Toto. time with? A man who's incredibly particular about his orders? There's no way that guy's tipping. You know that, right? Yeah, I mean... We'll have to see when we end up at the IHOP because that's where we're spending our day, Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck giving specific instructions to the IHOP staff. I'm sure they're going to accommodate. (sighs) I miss IHOP. Anyway, thank you very much for the question. Let's get in another one. Uh, Kit Vertz says... There's a lot of anti-turf sentiment surfacing in the US after recent injuries of Jao Paulo and Miles Robinson. Is turf a genuine threat to our players? Will MLS move away from it? Do any other major leagues use turf? Uh, Big T, we know Thierry Henry famously shied away from turf to protect his knees and his Achilles in the latter part of his career at Red Bulls. Um, and the staff seemed to go along with that. I don't know if it was contractual or not. And I think the same thing was with Zlatan. He said, yeah. when, before he came to America, he said he'd only play on turf if it was a life and death situation which I don't know when it ever would be but he did sit out some games on turf as well um, all I can think of is that Nike ad where they play against like the demons that would be maybe life and death aside mm-hmm. from that if that were on turf I guess he could do that one but I think that was more on like a gladiator pitch of sand so <laughs> may- maybe less of a, of a relevant point for Zlatan um, in terms of the debate about turf I think most of the anti-turf sentiment is rooted in a couple things. It's that turf tends to be laid on concrete or compacted earth, which means it's harder, which means there's theoretically a greater risk of injury. Uh, there's also the idea that artificial turf is designed to basically just grip better because it's simulating grass, but 
trying to do it in a better way, but that means if you have more grip, it can put more strain on your ankle and your knee, which can lead to those kind of more severe injuries. Turf toe, similarly, because of grip and also because you're putting force down, it bends that big toe back. That's where that comes from. Creates a lot more heat, and that one is definitely true from experience. Turf fields are going to run a lot hotter, but there's a great article uh, on American Soccer Analysis, which basically concludes that there's no real difference between the two, especially when it comes to injuries. And a lot of it comes down to maintenance, basically. Uh, The article concluded, MLS teams that play on turf average three and a half injury absences per game. So do MLS teams that play on grass. There's no difference in the rate of injuries between turf and grass. But turf fields are actually more expensive to maintain on average than grass fields. Facility owners will often neglect that maintenance, though, because there's the idea that once you've put turf down, you don't have to water it. You don't have to mow it. It just is there and you can schedule games on it. But you are supposed to do maintenance. The inclusion of those like little rubber pellets to start and they've added new fibers like coconut fibers now that's meant to soften the blow. It's meant to give it more cushioning. But you have to rake that out and make sure it's evenly applied. Otherwise, it loses some of that uh, like efficacy, I guess. And so basically, it's poorly maintained turf fields that I think become the problem more so than just turf field in general. Ultimately, I think it's basically just that it feels weird to play on turf. It's not natural grass. Soccer is a sport that we think of as being meant to be played on natural grass. And so when you're playing it on turf... Those little differences, especially the heat, I think become much more noticeable and much more just frustrating, I think, for players. And so I don't know if we're necessarily in a situation where turf is this scourge that's destroying careers, but I think whenever a major injury like an Achilles snap happens on turf, it's always going to stand out a little bit more than if that same injury happens on grass. Well, and part of that is, Taylor, I think because those injuries are just magnified more because players very clearly don't like playing on turf, at least most of them relative to grass. And so you get more players talking about it on social media and and fair, fair play to them. They can do whatever they want. If they don't want to play on turf, that's completely understandable to me. You get people like, uh, you know, I guess X players in the media that then amplify some certain things and, and you might get more coverage of a Miles Robinson or a Jao Paulo injury for, for those couple of reasons, and then also just those situations. It just so happens that those players are pretty high-profile guys in the American soccer sphere, and the teams they play on e- even more so. So I think that is an element as well. Taylor, I found relatively similar things to you. In that, I found a bunch of studies that contradicted each other. So I saw yeah, the NFLPA exactly. say players have a 28% higher rate of non-contact lower extremity injuries when playing on artificial turf. And then I saw a bunch of other studies that said, yeah, there's not really a difference. And so I, I, I couldn't draw a firm conclusion about the difference there. And that's what that ASA article gets at as well. I did find an article from our very own Graham Ruthven in The Guardian, I don't know if anybody else saw this, about artificial no. turf in Major League Soccer. And Graham had written a piece on... Not this exact topic specifically related to injuries, but about whether or not MLS can really push into the top leagues in the world if they have a bunch of games on artificial turf. And and Graham noted in that article that not all artificial pitches are the same. And Taylor, I think you kind of got to this point with talking about maintenance, but even with the the supplier and the quality of the artificial turf, there is a, a major difference. So Graham says that some artificial turf is better than, than others. So the Portland Timbers field turf surface, and this is a direct quote from that Guardian article, for instance, is widely agreed to be better than the artificial surface at Gillette Stadium. And I don't know if things have been updated or changed since that article was written a couple of years ago, but it does get at this idea that not all turf is created equal, And depending on how it's being cared for and and where it's coming from, the technology, 
that does impact things. So that was part of Grant's point. The other part is, you know, not a lot of other leagues in the world, and this gets to Kit's question, have teams that play on turf or in stadiums with turf. So Scotland has some, and Graham mentioned that in the article. I went out and researched, and some teams in the Eredivisie or in the lower divisions in the Netherlands have uh, have stadiums that play, have stadiums with turf in them, I should say. Young Boys in Switzerland has turf from what I could find, and same with FC Nordjylland in Denmark. There's a few more beyond that. I know Boavista in Portugal had turf at one point recently. I could not confirm to see if that was still accurate. But by and large, the Premier League and none of the top-tier English teams have turf. I've never seen a La Liga team or, or any teams really in the top five leagues that I can recall that have turf. Even Schalke, who's a really big team in Germany, they play in, if I'm not mistaken, a dome or some sort of stadium where you can't grow grass in there and it will not grow well inside the stadium. So they just open up the, the side of the stadium and roll the field out let it grow outside the field, and roll it back in. The Arizona Cardinals do the same thing out in Glendale, close to me. That's a tactic that a lot of stadiums and, and teams will use. But by and large, MLS has more teams with turf than most other leagues in the world. And there's some logical reasons for that when you think about the shared stadium thing. But MLS is is up there in that regard. And as I understand it, it's also like weather factors into that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, because if you have a, if you have a place where you're going to have a ton of rain consistently, I don't know if that's why Seattle, the football team and the soccer team play on turf. But I know that there are facilities where if they have above average rainfall consistently, like according to the national average, then I think there is dispensation for playing on turf. Same thing for a lot of uh, Scandinavian countries uh, and, and Denmark also having, I think, uh, more turf because you have inclement weather. And so it makes that easier to deal with. Uh, I, I'm assuming. Assuming that is the case, I have not done the science of weather and turf. Um, but I think ultimately, Joe, to your point, it's not that widespread, and I think it never will be because it does. It just it does feel different, and I think whether or not it is playing on turf, you just you aren't as certain. I know for me, even if, like playing on it regularly, there's just that feeling of like, is my foot going to grip here? Is it going to bounce the same way? Is it going to be the same? There's just a little bit of hesitation in in the way I play at least maybe that's not the case for other people but for me and I can see how that leads to more injuries because if you're going into a challenge or like and you're not fully thinking about making sure you win the ball and don't get the player but you're like oh I hope I don't lose my footing in the wrong way you're just not as focused as you need to be your brain isn't as locked in as it might need to be and I will also add that when you're going in for a slide tackle the major knock that I would fully agree with against turf is I have gotten turf burns. I got one on my leg sliding in for a tackle that took <laughs> probably six months to fully heal because it takes off a huge amount of skin and it's not pleasant at all. And I remember the photos during the Women's World Cup and uh, in the lead up to it where there was players, players' legs just openly bleeding because of turf burn and because they were hitting the ground on turf that was overlaid on cement and that's not going to get the job done either. So I think... There might be less of a risk or like as the same risk of of serious injury of tearing an ACL or spraining an ankle or tearing an Achilles. But but I have to believe there is a much higher level of surface injuries that you can play through, but they're going to be uncomfortable and painful on top. So I think that's also always going to be a knock against turf until they continue to refine that technology. I think the point. Taylor is, um, which what Graham's article said is that not all turf was created equally. But you can yep. also argue that, you know, in, in conditions where the pitch this is, is frozen, you're going to get mm-hmm. you know, solid ground there as well. So you, it depends on the weather conditions as well. I remember a conversation I had with um, my friend Jimmy Conrad, uh, uh, my co-host on Kick TV back in the day, who said that all MLS players hated playing in Montreal at the Olympic Stadium because that had like solid concrete and it had very little give 
um, on the surface they put on top of it, whereas some surfaces were a lot more forgiving than that. Um, and as Joe said, there are there's some artificial turf in Scotland. There are some northern European leagues that you allow dispensation uh, for weather reasons. And also there's an economic factor. Like I believe in the FA Cup, lower down the pyramid, teams are allowed to have 3G or artificial surfaces um, because it's cheaper to maintain. It's cheaper to keep a 3G surface going in the long term than it is to have uh, real grass and one other thing I'll say is that the technology has gotten a lot better like Barney's blog in How I Met Your Mother um, 19, in the 1980s there was this spate of English teams who introduced uh, what they would call plastic pitches back then um, Loftus Road if you go on YouTube if you put Loftus Road plastic pitch in you'll see it just looks ludicrous the ball looks like it bounces twice as high every time it hits the surface Players basically needing skin grafts every time they go down for a tackle. Uh, they got rid of it reasonably quickly um, in, in most grounds. There was a sort of a, a fashion for it at that time, which they, uh, they, they brought back real grass because people were getting injured and the technology wasn't where it is today. Kit, thank you very much for that question. We'll take a quick break when we come back. Plenty more listener questions. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're taking your listener questions, including this one from Demetrius Osborne. Great handle. Why can't Man City succeed in the Champions League? 
Uh, Joe Lowry, maybe Man City aren't the mentality monsters of certain teams that play in red. We know they've come close several times in the Champions League, notably last season, of course, and got to the semi stage a few times. But Pep Guardiola not doing it without a guy called Leo Messi in his team, it seems. It's been six tries for City under Pep in the Champions League. They made it to the final once, the semifinals once this this season against Real Madrid, the quarterfinals three times in the round of 16 once. So not not great results for City, certainly with the amount of money that they've spent trying to build a team that can do this specific job. It hasn't happened. And so my overarching answer to this question is not one that I think a lot of folks are going to like, and it's not a particularly satisfying answer. Maybe that's the reason why I don't think folks are going to like it. But my answer is that knockout competitions are kind of a crapshoot. And we yep. see this in club competitions. We see this in World Cup competitions as well. Any sort of international tournament, all of this stuff. Knockout competitions in soccer and in most sports, not, not every sport, but soccer, I think more than most, are, are just crapshoots. Good teams do tend to win. So let me get that out there. Last season, Chelsea was a good team. Before that, we've seen Real Madrid win, I mean, back to back to back with a very, very strong team with tons of good players. Good teams win the Champions League, almost always. But even when one good team wins, a lot of other really good teams are going to lose. That's just how this has to work. And it happens with City that they've been one of those very good teams to lose six times under Pep Guardiola. And I know that feels like, okay, if it happens once or twice, I guess I could understand. If it happens three or four or five or six times, it starts to feel a little shady. And I, I do hear that. And I think there are some other underlying reasons here. I'm not trying to say that City have been flawless in the Champions League. Going without a number six last year in the final against Chelsea was a curious choice from Pep Guardiola. But for me, the bigger thing in that game, as I recall, was City's pressing structure was not good. And they were getting pulled apart by Chelsea for stretches of that game. And they put themselves behind the eight ball with maybe some slow adjustments. That's been an issue. They also have had some real defensive errors. I think about uh, back in the 2019 20 Champions League. It was against Lyon. That's when City lost in the quarterfinals. Kyle Walker just not tracking back really at all on Lyon's opening goal. That puts Lyon ahead and City never fight their way back. And they, they lose 3-1, I believe, in that game. That's just one example of an individual mistake that can sink any team. And it happened to sink City in that particular game. So there have been some maybe tactical mistakes or, or slow adjustments. And there certainly have been some individual errors. But I still keep coming back to the fact that winning the Champions League is really really hard. And City have had some pretty rotten luck and some poorly timed mistakes, but I think the real reason is winning knockout competitions is extremely difficult, and for every one excellent, very strong team that wins the Champions League, there's going to be three, four, five, six other very good teams that don't win, and City have happened to fall into that latter category every single season under Pep Guardiola. Yeah. I, I, uh, Joe, my first note was it's really hard to win the Champions League yeah. unless you're Real Madrid. I was going to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so I agree with Joe that ultimately it's, it's a knockout competition. It's hard to win a knockout competition when you have so many teams in there. I do think, and this will probably be a, a difference of perspective between me and Joe, similar to the Carlo Ancelotti versus Jurgen Klopp conversation. Uh, I, I do wonder if when you're talking about league play, uh, in the Premier League, you've got 38 games. You can sort of stretch out what you're doing and you're playing against teams that don't have the budget you do that aren't as high profile. 
And so I think if you go up against Villa and Villa do something that's a little bit different than what you're used to, you might draw that game. But then you're going to play Crystal Palace or, or Leicester or whomever, and they're not going to be doing that same thing. So ultimately, you're going to keep playing your game. Maybe you can adjust based on what Villa did. And if Leicester does this, then we know how to deal with it. But you have more time. I think a a 38-game schedule allows you to kind of be the team that you want to be, and that's what Pep is all about, right? He's about, you need to stand in this spot and not this spot. You were two yards away. You didn't receive fast enough. You took a a half second too long to pass. I think that is the level of detail that is emphasized. But in the knockout rounds, I don't know if that works as well. And And I look at a club like Real Madrid, under Zidane, under Ancelotti, that does feel much more like a club that has tactics, obviously has a game plan. I'm not trying to dismiss tactics outright, but I am adding that I think backing the players and and sort of trusting the players to find a way through puts a little bit less pressure on them and allows them to play more organically. And that works when you have the payroll of, say, Real Madrid or the talent of, say, France. I think Didier Deschamps did that really well in 2018. He gave them basic tactics. He put players in positions where they were going to shine. He got Paul Pogba to somehow play deeper, which is a thing that I think only he has been able to do. But he had overlapping fullbacks. He had coverage where he needed it. But ultimately, he trusted his big performance to make something happen. And that combination, I think, worked really well. And I think... Basically, what it boils down to for me is that sometimes I do think there's an element of the Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And I think sometimes when City get punched in the mouth, they're not quite as used to it. And I think also there is a feeling of like, maybe, just maybe, oh no, this has happened before, it could happen again. And that kind of panic energy, it's what the Red Sox famously had prior to 2004, was once things started to slip, the whole crowd would sense it, the team would sense it. Uh, It's a thing Bill Simmons wrote about all the time back then, that you could just tell like, oh no, this guy's going to go into a slump. Oh no, we're going to lose this game. And I do wonder if you can see that panic in players on occasion when things start to go against them once that becomes the narrative. And I don't know how much they buy into or read those articles, but I think it's probably hard to escape when you're in a club that's as high profile as Man City. So I think ultimately it's Champions League very hard to win, knockout round or knockout competitions especially difficult, especially if you're so reliant on specific tactical instruction. I think that's where some of the Pep overthought this one comes from, but I think that's an oversimplification of a larger thing, which is that individual instruction really works, I think, on a season-long basis, maybe less so when it comes to those knockout rounds. So TLDR for you, Taylor, is Pep's a bold fraud, right? (laughs) Absolutely not. I love me some Pep, (laughs) uh, as painful as that is to say. Uh, And, And I think why I'm sort of like... I had a hard time with this question, and I'm guessing similar to Joe. It's that, like, you can make an argument that, yeah, City probably should have won the Champions League. They have the money they do. They've been as successful as they have been in the Premier League, and yet they still haven't won it. And so maybe there's an argument there. And, and yeah, Pep, like, did overthink it this one time, and they lost really badly. And he tried to man-mark one game, and that didn't work very well. He has tried different things at different points. But honestly, like, similar to the turf conversation, I think those stand out more because it's a kind of fun narrative to have that this invincible manager maybe does have a flaw in his approach, whereas it might be a more boring answer of, like, it's really hard to win and there's other teams that are very good and other teams that have more experience winning it, and I think that factors into the equation as well. Going on that idea that Man City just unlucky and there are very good teams in the Champions League and it is hard to win. Um, Let's say you flip a coin 100 times. You'd expect around 50 heads and 50 tails, right? So... Could it be that they've just been really unlucky with the probabilities here, Taylor? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like you look at the draw and who they might end up getting. Uh, I I would say probably Liverpool would have preferred to have Villarreal than Real Madrid uh, in their knockout round game. And but that said, I think historically City have been knocked out by like I think Shakhtar Donetsk caused them some problems one year. Lyon definitely eliminated them. So it's not fully just that they always come up against some massive club that ends up eliminating them. And maybe there's like a, an unfair call here, or an unfair bounce there. Uh, but I think it's all just sort of murky because I think there's multiple things that can be the case when we're having this conversation. I think it's really easy and understandable to want it to just be Pep is bad or the tactics are wrong or they're cursed or whatever it is. A simple answer is always more appealing, but I think it's not always appropriate. Bold fraud. Got it. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, and thank you for the question, uh, Demetrius. <laughs> Forrest Lyle has got a question for you, Taylor. Um, you're going to enjoy this one even more, I imagine. With Man United seemingly making some good moves within the front office as well as players leaving, do you think the structure is being put in place for United to compete with City and Liverpool? I got through that with a straight face, Taylor. <laughs> All right. I have, a, I have my honest answer and then I will explain it. My honest answer is I have no idea. Uh, but it's not just because that's the easy answer. It's because I'm trying to be honest and I'm also trying to not do what I always do which is be really frustrated by Manchester United and some of the decisions they make. Then they make one decision. Same thing we do with the U.S. and number nines. Oh, that guy scored three goals? He's the answer. I don't want to do that here. I don't want to be like, well, they made a couple changes. They've solved it. I think with Liverpool, it took multiple seasons to get to where they are. And I think with Manchester United, that is probably going to be the case, given the issues we know they have. So what I would say is they seem to be making smart moves, in my opinion. They seem to be making some important moves, in my opinion. But will that lead to a better structure? I don't know, because I don't really know what the structure was before. Uh, There are definitely org charts out there. Laurie Whitwell, I think, came up with one for The Athletic. And even there, I'm still a little bit confused. So I think until we start to see this team get through preseason, start playing in the regular season and start seeing how they go about making some signings, how they go about bringing players or keeping players in the team and renewing contracts, but also bringing young players through, that seems to be a mandate for Eric Ten Hag, which is something he already, I think, believes in from his Ajax days. It's going to be tough to know what is working in terms of the structure. Now, with that said, uh, when you look at some of the departures, there's uh, Hemant Tseseo, I apologize for butchering that one, their chief strategy officer, I don't know what that is, Matt Judge, their director of football negotiations, uh, and Ed Woodward obviously have all left, as have Chief Chief Scout Jim Lawler, head of global scouting uh, Marcel Boot, and or probably Boo. Uh, but the, the big one would be uh, Tesayo, Woodward, and Matt Judge all worked in adjacent offices at United's headquarters in, I believe, London, uh, and were all very heavily linked. And so it does seem like people connected to Ed Woodward and his sort of trusted people in the club are resigning or moving on to greener pastures and I think reading between the lines I would guess being given a check with a lot of zeros to say that they are happy to move on to greener pastures and so that does seem like some of the areas that have not worked as well people that have not worked as well are being moved on but will the new structure coming in work better I don't know because I thought the Ralph Rangnick appointment was like meant with an aim with an eye towards figure out what isn't working streamline things get rid of some of the dead weight and like basically provide a lot of like blueprint and foundation for when Ten Hag comes in, they can work together. And I don't really know if that's actually going to be the case. It seems like Rangnick is not particularly popular with the players and maybe with some of the front office people. So even there, it feels like some of the structure that we or I thought might be there might not be there. So I think there are 
smart moves being made, or at the very least, there are moves being made that are meant to correct things. But I don't know if those will end up being the right ones that provide that structure that I think Man United fans would want. It's too early to tell right now, right? I mean, that's basically where we are. are, No, Taylor, that was a great explanation. (laughs) And and your point about some of Woodward's close working associates, and including Edward Woodward himself, Moving on in, in some of the restructuring in the front office, there's a director of football, Darren Fletcher as a technical director. There have been moves made in that front office, and that's where Manchester United have to start, right? We've seen too much aimless player acquisition and maybe even coaching acquisition as well over the last X number of seasons. There's been too much of that, <laughs> and they need yeah. to start having a, a more cohesive plan. That's what sets Liverpool and, and Man City, but I, I, both of those clubs really, apart is they have a very clear plan and structure and identity. Manchester United doesn't have that right now. They, they just don't. And I, so, I think we're too early in this process to tell if these are good moves being made. But Taylor, your point about them making moves in the first place, I think is exactly right. They are doing some things. Now, on the player side, uh, I know Forrest mentioned some players leaving. Uh, have you guys seen that? I have not seen that. I know there are players that are out of contract at the end of the year. Paul Pogba, Jesse Lingard, Edson Cavani, Juan Mata, they're all out of contract according to the transfer market. I haven't seen any player announcements one way or the other, Really, certainly any major player announcements one way or the other. I think that will be a pretty telling next step. We'll, we'll start mm-hmm. to get a little more information we'll, when we have an idea of what Man United's roster strategy is and their player acquisition strategy and what types of players they're targeting. And, and as this as the summer goes on, we'll have a better picture of what this team is going to look like and maybe have a better understanding of how they might set themselves up to eventually compete with City and Liverpool. But right now we're in sort of the testing trial wait and see period with Manchester United. And Joe, I'm really glad you brought up the players leaving aspect of that question. One that I had, I'm going to be honest, sort of overlooked because you're right. I don't think there's many players linked with transfers away. I think it is players out of contract and being allowed to move on or being told to move on maybe more appropriately. And that is, I think, a a notable difference. As I understand it, Ed Woodward was a big fan of the renew a player, even if you're not going to play them for multiple years, so that their value is increased, because if they only have a year left on their deal, they're going to be much, much cheaper than if they have four years on their deal. But what that ended up doing was he kept having to give players raises, and that's how you start to get into Phil Jones making way more money than he should be making, but he has a five-year deal, because you're trying to kind of preserve that value. But I don't think that was the or maybe that's the right move on occasion, but it is not the right move every single time. And that seemed to be what they were going for. So I would say even that some players are being allowed to run down those contracts and leave on freeze like that for most clubs would be a bad thing or a thing that's being done intentionally in Bayern Munich's case and Robert Lewandowski. But I think for Manchester United, it's a sign of like, okay, so we're not just going to keep. Uh, paying people £100,000 a week to never play football for this club. Maybe that is a positive development. But again, that's a maybe. We'll have to wait and see. For me, what's fascinating about Man United is that it bucks a trend. It shows that money isn't everything in soccer. We're led to believe that if you've got loads and loads of money, you do great. Whereas what's really true is you need loads and loads of money, you need culture, you need identity, you need leadership, like Joe was talking about there. And that's absolutely what Man United lack, isn't it? And for me, the answer to the question is, I don't think the structure is being put in place because I think Man United year in, year out, just do these slight knee-jerk reactions at various tiers of the club. But it's still the same at the top. And the culture comes from the top, the identity comes from the top. And until that changes... I don't think anything else will. I think they'll still be concerned with selling tomato juice to their uh, yeah. Eastern European t- 
tomato juice partner rather than, you know, having an actual identity on the field. So for me, I, 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 I am, maybe I haven't seen enough evidence that a real structure for real concrete change is being put in place. Yeah, I mean, think about like the biggest clubs in the world, and they either have a person making decisions who is a known name, Florentino Perez with, with Real Madrid, or Rummenigge or Hunes, or now Khan with Bayern Munich. You're going to have those names, but otherwise, you have a manager who's been there and has that profile. And that's what City have with Pep. That's what Liverpool has with Klopp. I think for Manchester United, that was Sir Alex Ferguson. When we did that 101 on him, a thing I hadn't fully realized is how he slowly grew into basically making every single decision. But if he trusted a person to kind of continue with his vision for a thing, then he was happy to to delegate that and move on to something else. But you have to have that central figure, be it a front office person or a manager who can be the lightning the lightning rod for any sort of like major moments but also can be the figure that sort of guides the way the club is perceived publicly and probably privately and so until Manchester United are able to have a coach who is there for a couple seasons at least and feels like we'll be there for long enough to establish a philosophy and to weather some of that criticism I, I agree with you, Ryan. I don't think just bringing in new executives is going to be the change that's necessary. I think it's it's much more of a slow process built on familiarity and consistency, and you sort of grow towards being able to win games regularly versus parachuting in personnel and players and then hoping they figure it out. I don't think that works quite as well. Yeah. Unless, Taylor, unless. Unless. Man United bring in Toto Wolf. Well, that should solve it. Game changer, baby. Game Everybody better cook those eggs precisely. One flip, people. One flip. (laughs) As long as the canteen knows the kind of bread, the kind of knife, the kind of butter he needs on his toast with his egg, everything will be fine. (laughs) Thank you very much for that question for us. We'll be back with more after this short break. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you are connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to Listen to Questions and a segment of the show I'm calling Questions That Are Extremely Difficult to Answer. Strap in, gents, strap in. Jorge Martinez has got one for us here. If you're an MLS manager and you were given a choice between double salary cap space 
two extra DP spots at the same budget charge, or unlimited international player slots that you can sell, which one would you choose and why? Oh boy, this is a great question, Jorge. Um, I can see an advantage to all of these, Joe. I think I gravitated personally towards the international player slots because of the fact that you can sell them. They've got sort of a double value intrinsically and because you've got a much, much bigger player pool. And because I have previously worked for Charlotte FC, who would have all international players if they could, <laughs> evidently. Yeah, so I, I thought about this, and I love this question. And it is a better one for Paul and Sam, and I, I'm going to try to do my best uh, impression of them. them. Okay, Taylor, that's such <laughs> cheating. I don't know why I didn't think about that. I, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say then. Ryan, I thought about the international roster slots thing. They're currently selling, from what I could find, from between 200k and 250k. So that's, that's not insignificant. And if you could have unlimited at that value, of course, that's a no-brainer. The challenge here is I'm trying to think about how I would negotiate with other teams to sell off these international spots when they all know I have an infinite number of them. I'm not going to get 200K. I'm not going to get 225 or 250,000. The market value of them is going to plummet because I'm flooding the market with those things. And that is, that's, that's why I'm steering away from that. If that wasn't an issue... Yeah, it's a no-brainer. You have infinite money. But I don't think that's exactly how it would play out in, in a real-world market, and in MLS especially. So I, I didn't go towards the international roster spots. I had a hard time then choosing between having five DPs instead of three, so getting two extra DPs to move from three to five, or, uh, or doubling the salary cap, which is currently almost $5 million. It's $4.9 million. I'd end up with $9.8 million worth of salary cap. Both the cap increase and the extra DPs help improve roster quality over a larger portion of the roster, which is great. And I think that's really what MLS needs to be doing. We're seeing that, and, and we just had a piece up on Backfield with basically that thesis and the timing of this was kind of funny on that regard. But I probably lean towards expanding the salary cap. I think it gives you a little more flexibility than the two extra DP deals and the ceiling might not be quite as high for a $9.8 million salary cap versus five DP deals. You can spend a lot more on high-end players with extra DPs, and, and there is absolutely a place for that. But I think the floor is higher for the extra salary cap than it is for the two extra DPs. And, and so for that reason, in terms of boosting the overall floor of MLS's quality across the league, I lean towards the salary cap. Now, Taylor, I welcome you to absolutely destroy everything I just said um, nope. Through oh oh good okay I'm <laughs> nope. gonna shut up go on go I think on it's, I think it's telling uh, sorry Ryan to lump you in with uh, like the disreputable me in this one but I equally was like oh I feel like if you had the international roster slots you could you just keep selling them and keep making money and then in my world that I created you would be the only one to have international roster slots so everyone did have to come with oh, you but that wasn't that's good. spelled out in the question. So I went with Ryan, Paul and Sam both went with Joe, and I feel like that is probably the safer camp to be in. Uh, Sam said, uh, two-time salary space with everything else the same. I think I'd take that. It's the option that would let you sign the better duster. He then clarified that he meant roster. That led to a series of conversations about Lorenzo Lamas and Mac from Always Sunny. Uh, before Paul chimed in with, yes, I would go with two-times budget. It gives you maximum flexibility. So I think that Joe... And Paul both went for flexibility in terms of what you could do with that uh, increased budget. I'm inclined to agree with them since the three of them combined, I'd say, are uh, some MLS experts that you should trust. Taylor, I just love the picture of like Sam kind of gleefully texting with you back and forth while Paul is somehow juggling multiple children and trying to write a story at the same time. And that looking down right. at why his phone is buzzing so much and being yeah. slightly annoyed and chiming yeah. in anyway because he is, he is still a very nice guy. Would you be I surprised think that's how that to works. know that? 
Would you be surprised to know that my question to them to begin this was, we got this listener question, and I'm wondering if y'all have opinions. No worries if you don't have time to respond. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Paul's frantic schedule, uh, so I don't want to take up too much of it, but it did afford us the opportunity to talk about Mac from Always Sunny, and that's Very what good. we all need in our lives. I honestly, I honestly cannot say how happy I am that we had the same answer, because I spent a long time <laughs> trying to reason my way through this and still wasn't confident at all. Yeah. And uh, I was ready to be ripped to shreds. So this is this turned out to be a good Wednesday so far, fellas. The DP one, I think, could be the one that, in my mind, most is most likely to backfire. Because that does feel like potentially like early MLS, early yeah. back in experiment days when suddenly you've got a very top-heavy roster. Because the rule was, what, that it would still be the same hit on budget charge. Right. But it's still a, a sizable hit when you're talking about... Joe, what did you say it was right now, like 4.9? Yeah, the cap is 4.9 million right now, and it will expand over the next few years. But the other quick point before I flip it back to you is DPs, I believe, hit the salary cap at $612,000, somewhere mm-hmm. in that $600,000 range and so if you have five of them, that's great. But if the cap isn't getting any bigger to go with it, it then you just lose, what is that, like $3 million of your cap space with those mm-hmm. five players. And then you can't, uh, you can't really have a whole lot of other wiggle room to sign the rest of your roster. Right. And that's where you get back to signing like 18-year-olds for $20,000 and hoping that you can kind of figure out that balance. And I think that's ultimately what I'm realizing is that when it comes to MLS rosters, you want as, mu- as much flexibility to play with as possible to give yourself options to maybe bring in another DP, but maybe bring in a young DP or maybe make some trades to get better gam or whatever it might be. I think I'm learning flexibility is ultimately the goal. And so the uh, doubling the salary budget does seem to give you the most flexibility you could have. So let's go with that one for sure. All right. Thank you, Jorge, for the question. Thank you, Taylor, for getting Paul and Sam to do your homework for you. Uh, no problem. One final question from it's Miles. It's not the first time in this show, and it also won't be the last. <laughs> Actually, it is the first time in this show, but it won't be the last. There it is. Excellent stuff. Aha. I'm sure they are delighted to hear that. Miles um, <laughs> Anderson with the question here. If you could go back in time and stop one goal from happening to change the outcome of that match, what would it be and why? For example, says Miles, stopping the Aguero goal, so United win the league, or Mario Goetz's goal in the World Cup final to send it to penalties. Um, I really, really struggle with this question, gents. I have to admit, the closest I could come to a proper answer would be all the way back at Euro 96. Um, England against Germany in the semi-final of that European Championships. I would stop Stefan Kuntz. Uh, and his 16th minute equaliser against England, because I feel like that would mean England would likely have won that game. It wouldn't have gone to a penalty shootout in which Gareth Southgate missed his penalty. And I believe England would have fairly easily beaten the Czech Republic side that turned up in the final of that contest. I wanted to try and find something that would change the outcome for my team, Wimbledon, because we've just been relegated, for example, and we've been relegated twice. But in both instances, we went down by three points. So one goal wouldn't ever have swung that outcome. So I've really struggled here. Um, Joe, where did you go with this one? Okay, so maybe this is just based on the types of games that the teams that I most enjoy watching have played. But I didn't have any trouble with this question. I had one answer come to mind immediately and then one answer come to mind shortly afterwards. The first one is Alvin Jones's goal hey. for Trinidad and Tobago against the USMNT in 2017. This is the game in Cuba. This was the last World Cup qualifier for the U.S. in that cycle in the hex. The U.S. had just beaten Panama 4-0, and they had a 90-something percent chance to qualify on October 10th, 2017 for the World Cup. Basically, all the U.S. had to do was draw. And as we all know, that did not happen. The first goal was uh, an own goal from Omar Gonzalez. 
The second goal was an Alvin Jones goal from like 8,000 yards out that Tim Howard couldn't quite get to. It's in the 37th minute in Cuba, and it put uh, Trinidad and Tobago up 2-0. The U.S. pulled one back but could not fight back for the draw. If Jones hadn't scored that goal in the 37th minute and Christian Pulisic still scored his goal in the 47th minute, we're looking at a draw and we're looking at the U.S. finishing third in the hex and going to the World Cup. Now, I think they would have gotten absolutely clapped at the World Cup. That was not a good U.S. team. There is a chance we would have seen Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney in in sort of an infusion of young talent. Maybe that would have helped. I still don't think they would have done well in that World Cup. But either way, for the effect that that had on American soccer— I am I am getting Tim Howard about six inches closer to that ball, or maybe a foot closer to that ball, uh, and not letting that Alvin Jones goal find the back of the net. My other answer, quickly, is a little more under the radar. It's Luke Spencer's goal in the 62nd minute for Louisville City versus Phoenix Rising in the 2018 USL Cup. It's the only uh, USL Cup that Phoenix has ever been in, and I was excited about this game. Guys, this was before I started covering Phoenix Rising in person. I remember watching it, sitting. I like to sit on the floor sometimes when I watch soccer games, laying down. I uh, got some pillows to prop my head up. I'm watching it on TV. I'm excited. It's it's the first championship whoa, whoa, game. Whoa, whoa, Joe, you lay down to watch a game? Why, why not combine the best of both worlds, laying down and watching soccer? Feels, huh. feels <laughs> right to floor? me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I like to be okay. close. I want to. I want to be close, Ryan. I don't. Okay. I don't have very good eyesight. Anyway, we can come back to that. It was their first championship game. Drogba up top, Solomon Asante on the wing. Two of the best players that have ever set foot in the USL. Some other legit talents on both sides of the field as well. And it's nil nil in the second half. It's the sixty second minute. It's a Louisville City corner, and Luke Spencer scores a nothing goal for Louisville. No offense, Louisville fans. Um, and Phoenix Rising lose one nil. I was sad. I would take that goal away, and maybe Phoenix Rising would win. The end. <laughs> um, Joe, I had Alvin Jones as well. I struggle with that one because I, I think a lot of times those moments that we hate are important because they give us like that kind of base layer negative thing that we never want to go back to again. And that is definitely how I feel about Kuva. Uh, but at the same time, like you want those big moments to lead to dramatic change. And that's what happens with Germany when they do really poorly. They go back and reinvent uh, their entire like basically youth structure, I forget what the Das Reboot, the Raphael Honigstein book is all about that. And I don't know if we can say U.S. soccer necessarily did that. The failure to qualify leads to Sinugulati stepping down. Carlos Codero wins that election. Then he eventually stands down, and now here we are. Uh, you have Greg Berhalter come in after a year, and and it's under Dave Sarakin. And, and so it, in the end, it's not, it's not as though that led to sweeping change. And so though I think there has been some change and some adjustment since that failure to qualify, ultimately, I agree with you that I wouldn't mind Alvin Jones maybe putting that one wide. I think because it would definitely make the lives of fans way better and I think maybe leads to less negativity around the national team at present. It's also, to my mind, like the last time we saw Tim Howard play for the U.S., or if not one of the last times, certainly in a competitive game. And that feels weird for a player who was so important to the United States for things to end the way they did for him. And we've talked about it previously with Altador and Bradley as well. So I think for those kind of three long-standing servants of the U.S. men's national team, for that to be their their sort of major final moment doesn't feel right to me either. So even if that meant that they qualify, they kind of limp into qualifying, they figure some things out, as you said, maybe there's a couple new faces in there, and then they end up not making it out of the group. I still think that probably leads to some changes for U.S. soccer overall. So yeah, ultimately, Joe, I agree with you. I think that's the one I would change. 
if I could take away a goal or maybe add a goal that wasn't scored, uh, that that's what I would maybe prefer to do. And I would let that goal uh, that should have stood for the United States in 2002, that Torsten Frings handballed off the line. I would let that stand and it's one to one and we go to extra time. And I think there's a chance the U.S. finds a way through in the end of that one. And it would be fascinating to see how far the U.S. could have done, gone if they'd gotten past Germany and Torsten Frings being a cheater. <laughs> well, there's, there's. Lo- I think it opens up a lot more if you if you question um, if you were allowing a goal rather than yeah. stopping one. That's, I think that's where I found the real challenge in the question. But an excellent one it was uh, from Miles Anderson. I don't. Uh, you 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 wouldn't stop Aguero scoring. Maybe have Manchester United win that 2012 Premier League Taylor. I mean, it's just such like if you're gonna have Man City win that title, it, it's such an iconic way, and that call is so great, and it also sort of felt like. Uh, maybe writing on the wall a little bit, but it, I think that's also the thing that motivates Ferguson to go out and get RVP and it changes things a little bit from there. So maybe that was like, had some positive to it, mm. but also it's just such an iconic moment that I would have a hard time removing it. Similarly, like I thought about getting rid of the hand of God moment. So then Ryan has one less thing to complain about when it comes to the World Cup and you only have Maradona dribbling through the entirety of England, but that those two things happened in the same game, it makes them better because (laughs) like the amazing feat of skill combined with the amazing moment of cleverness and cheating, like you can't have one without the other. Otherwise they become too much. Take that cleverness word out of your mouth. It's not clever. (laughs) It was clever. It was clever. (sighs) Just ruthless at the same time, but ruthless cleverness can still be a thing. That's pretty much Bobby Warshaw's entire career. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Miles, for that question. Why don't we do a very quick bonus, a very, very quick one from Jacob Court. Uh, It says, what is the worst soccer-related wager any of you have placed, and where does it rank in relation to the one Ryan made on Manchester United to win the Premier League this season? That is a thing I did at the start of the season when Man United had Ronaldo and Varane and Sancho, and I was feeling... All they still have those United. players, Ryan. They, they do still have all yeah. of those, those yeah, players. Yeah, we have the benefit of hindsight now as well, don't we, Joe? That's, <laughs> that's the thing that we have we did, that I didn't have last I, summer. It is funny that you did phrase that as like back when they had those players and that was going to be the difference. It's like, they're still there. They just didn't make uh, a difference. Back when they recruited those players and I was ah. feeling all, oh, Harry Maguire's very solid kind of mood that I was in. <laughs> um, <laughs> and any, anywho, I don't think I've had a worse bet than that in hindsight. I don't know how deep Gamblor has his claws into either of you, but Joe, any, any wages or propositions that have been worse than that or predictions? So I've done very little soccer betting in my time. I've done a little, a little wagering on MLS here and there, but nothing that is, is really super embarrassing. The worst prediction I can think of, I, I make it a, a life policy to try to make as few predictions as possible. Um, and Ryan, you do a good job of pulling some out of me. Mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. one that I keep coming back to is earlier this season in the Premier League, uh, I rib you for thinking, man, you were going to win the title. I, uh, I, I think Graham and I both said, sorry, Graham, to loop you in here, that Chelsea were the, the favorites. And we thought that they had a really good shot, that, or maybe that we even thought they would win the title this year after winning the Champions League last year. And they uh, are so clearly behind City and Liverpool, just like everyone else in the Premier League, that in hindsight, that prediction just looks so foolish. And I, I kind of knew that even like a month afterwards, but it was too late and I was just hoping for a Chelsea resurgence. That was never going to come. City and Liverpool were always going to be the better teams in this league this season. So uh, yeah, Chelsea, sorry if I jinxed you on that one. That was not my finest moment. I kind of wish it had gone to an even more extreme level of, of you and Graham predicting like Roman Abramovich will be celebrating on the pitch at the end of the season and really, really made it uh, oh. an extreme level of prediction. <laughs> uh, my worst prediction ever would be, uh, I've talked about it many times, 
pretty much guaranteeing that Fred, not that Fred, but the other Fred, uh, would be the top uh, scorer, the Golden Boot winner at the 2014 World Cup, because I thought Brazil would have an incredible tournament. I thought he would finally be the answer to their to their goal-scoring issues. And instead, he scored one goal uh, in that entire tournament. I think he ends up losing his starting spot, and that would be the tournament in which Germany beat Brazil 7-1 to in the semifinal, a fairly... Uh, negative result for for Brazil, but just how confident I was that Fred would do things, and then he very much did not do things from that point on. I did ask a couple of my buddies who do more gambling than I do. Uh, one of them is a Manchester United fan who noted uh, he bet a friend of ours who's a Liverpool fan that Manchester United would finish above Liverpool in the 2019-2020 season. He bet him a delivery pizza. Uh, that would be the season that Manchester United finished, I believe, 33 points behind uh, Liverpool, who finished top of the table. Yeah, Liverpool 99, Man United 66. Uh, and that same person who he bet against, I asked, um, he said, one of the things I did a lot during the Euros was to pick a winner, a goal scorer, and say there will be at least seven corner kicks. Uh, I think that was like the prop bet that intensified the amount that they could earn. But instead, they kept getting the winner and goal scorer correct, and then there kept being five corner kicks or six (laughs) corner kicks. So he said, routinely betting that there would be a certain number of corner kicks and never, ever having that come close, uh, because there were only four corners in one game, was uh, an insane thing to do and so he he cites that one as betting on too many corners my other buddy says backing manchester united against liverpool and i feel like that is always a fool's <laughs> errand these days wow yeah your, your fred bet reminds me of the 2014 world cup where i also made a couple of terrible calls uh, in a prediction piece i believe i said the mvp of that tournament would be bernard uh the small <laughs> brazilian winger who i think i also said he'd go on to be like one of the biggest superstars in the game he didn't that didn't happen that did not happen uh also i said the top scorer i predicted in that tournament would be chino immobile uh italy scored two goals in total he did not score so uh yeah i'm Ooh. great predictions are hard World Cup was rough it was rough mm. yeah it was for england who finished even lower in that group than italy did yeah. Fourth place. Wonderful. And you have that to look forward to in 2022 when the United States and Scotland both advance, both advance at your expense. Oh, this is cute. Let's uh, <laughs> let, let's timestamp this one, Joe. Timestamp it for the edit so we can we'll play do. that one back uh, in uh, around uh, Thanksgiving. Hey, time. maybe maybe you guys will beat the U.S. in a World Cup someday, Ryan. It could happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it could happen one day. I don't want to play this game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are playing with fire, sir. I'm not going to disagree or agree. I'm just. Gonna oh, really? Say. I thought I was playing with a mediocre team who don't achieve that much. Okay. I'm not going to be baited today, T. Not today. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, lots of people want to play Harry Kane who can't run anymore up top. That makes sense. And that concludes Listener Questions. Now I'm just making it too far. Let's finish this podcast now before we get into utter chaos. Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for everything apart from the last 10 seconds. Gareth Southgate's going to make a great Inter-Miami coach. That's what I have to say. Joe Lowry, thank you very much. <laughs> you got it, Ryan. And listener, thank you so much as well. We'll be back on the feed very soon, but for now, bye. Bye.